You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Suffice it to say, it has been a real joy to go through Hebrews, and I hope you found it edifying too. I hope that you found that it's really not as dense and inaccessible as people make it out to be. Uh, and it doesn't help, Doug Webster and I were talking, when people begin their commentaries with the words, this is really confusing. Um, when in fact it's really not. There are certainly some things in the book of Hebrews that it helps to understand the Jewish background to them, but that can be solved by Googling it, right? You can, you can figure it out or by getting a good commentary. The commentary that has been the biggest help to me has been Philip Edgecombe Hughes, H-U-G-E-H-E-S, uh, a good uh, Anglican minister who for years taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. But, uh, so I would commend that to you. You can get it on Amazon. Well, this morning we're at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, and we're just going to dive right in. This is page 1007 if you'd like to follow along. You might want to because otherwise you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would speak to us even now and that we would not throw away our confidence that is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the fourth of five warning passages in the letter to the Hebrews. This is where... Oh, my, Ken Michael, how are you? Uh, this is... Uh, this is the fourth of five warnings. We'll get to another one, but we've already been over the previous three. And this one, I hope, gets us to stop in our tracks. When we read this, it ought to make us pause and think, wait a minute, I need to read that again. Because it's heavy going. And this passage is a balance between encouragement and warning. And Christian ministry should reflect this. 
That is, it's not as if when I preach or when you're talking to a friend or when you're leading a Bible study, you think, do I have warning and encouragement at 50-50? Because indeed, there are passages that are all encouragement, right? And then there are passages which are heavier on the warning. And yet, overall, our ministry ought not to be one simply of discouragement. And I know plenty of people who do that, uh, a ministry of discouragement. But we also need encouragement as well. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are oftentimes when I come to church on Sunday and I long to hear a word. I need a word of encouragement. I, I feel like the Hebrew Christians, my faith sometimes is wavering. And I need a word of encouragement, and so often the church fails in that by simply giving a word of discouragement. But here the author of Hebrews says, no, we're going to balance this, not for the sake of balance, but understand that we need discouragement and encouragement in our Christian lives. And this passage represents that. But now we're back to this whole question of who in the world is the author of Hebrews talking to? Because it's a little bit scary. Is he speaking to Christians? And if that's the case, is, is he saying that you can be a Christian and lose your salvation? Is that what he's saying? That's the, that, when I read this, I don't know what you think when you read it, but when I read this, that's almost what it sounds like, doesn't it? So let's look and see what the author of Hebrews is actually saying. Well, one of the things that we established early on is when he's addressing those who have fallen away from the faith, he's addressing those who are willful, persistent, and deliberate in their opposition to God. It's not people struggling in the Christian faith. It's not the people who show up on Sunday that need a word from God, who need encouragement. It's people who are making it their business to undermine the work of the gospel, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's addressing in particular when he talks about those who have drifted away and are drawing back. But the result of that is the drifting away and the drawing back is because of things like persecution, discouragement, a returning to the old gods. That is these shadows that we talked about. So there is something powerful in encouragement, but there's also something powerful about the fear of God. Thank you. Uh, when, when we're told to fear God, there's actually something positive in that for Christians. Because we all need a motivation. I, I really like how Eric Alexander says it when he reads this passage. He says that there is no standing still in the Christian life. Have you ever thought about that? That there's no standing still in the Christian life? And yet every single one of us at some point in the Christian life has said, well, I'm kind of stagnant right now. I don't really feel like I'm, I'm going anywhere in my walk with the Lord. But what Hebrews is telling us here is actually there's no such thing as stagnation in the Christian life. You're always moving. You're either moving forward or you're moving back. This harkens back to earlier in Hebrews. Remember when he says, do not harden your heart today. Because the hardening of the heart doesn't happen all at once. It takes time. And so if we think that we're stagnating, it might actually mean that our heart is beginning the process of calcification spiritually. And so you're not stagnant. You're actually moving in the wrong direction. And when your eyes are open to that fact, what does it make you do as a Christian? Want to head in the right direction. And so a fear of God actually is a powerful motivator. 
And we see this, of course, in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But we see in verse 26 that it is a willful and deliberate turning away from God. For if we go on sinning deliberately, deliberately, now back to the original question, who is the writer speaking to? Well, who is the author writing this letter to? Hebrew Christians. He's writing to Christians and encouraging them to persevere. He's not speaking in the abstract. He's not speaking into thin air, but he's speaking to people. People like you and me. And yet there's a vagueness that they employ in order that we might see the dreadful warning and take it to heart so that the sanctifying power of the fear of God might drive us to Jesus in a new way. Do you understand that? That as Christians, it's okay for us to read this and get a little bit afraid. Because what the author of Hebrews wants us to do is to drive us to Jesus. When we reflect and think, oh goodness, am I the one that's turning away? We immediately ought to call to, remi call to reminder, and the Spirit speaks to, to us and says, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, flee to him. And so in those moments of fear or trepidation, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, those of us who put their trust in him. Paul even talks about this of himself, because none of this denies the perseverance of the saints, and that is that God who has chosen you to be in relationship with him and that you've been bought by the blood of Christ and that you will be with him in eternity. This doesn't call that into question in the least. Because even Paul himself struggled with this in 1 Corinthians 10:12 when he said, "Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." Meaning the one who was going around in a rather jocular fashion, basically saying, well, yeah, I can pretty much do whatever I want. And I'm okay with God, and God's okay with me. Remember that Tom T. Hall song? Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Me and Jesus got it all figured out. Well, who wrote that? Tom T. Hall, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Now, I understand what he's saying. You can absolutely have personal assurance, and the Bible gives you that personal assurance. God's Spirit gives you that personal assurance. Jesus on the cross gives you that personal assurance. The empty tomb gives you that personal assurance. But we never get to a point, I pray, in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ that we ever take for granted what He's done for us. It's no small thing for Him to die. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, as the author of Hebrews says, or uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So this raises the question of different kinds of sin. Because all of us can say that there is an element of waywardness and even deliberativeness, if that's even a word, when it comes to our own sin. Because I would imagine that if we all sat down together and we got real honest, there's probably at least one or multiple things that we constantly struggle with in our own lives. Anger, greed, lust, perfection, any, whatever, control, uh, any of those things are, are things that we might constantly struggle with in our lives. 
But I do think, keep that in mind. So we do struggle with that. But here the author of Hebrews is talking about two different kinds of sin, actually. There's the first kind of sin, which is an element of waywardness, ignorance, and folly. And then there's one in, which has an element, element of deliberate defiance and premeditated rebellion against God, his will, and his word. Now, Leviticus 4 actually talks about unwitting sin. You can go read that uh, before you go to bed tonight. It'll do the trick. But unwitting sin, uh, even though it is unwitting, still carries guilt. And these are these sins that, that you really didn't mean to commit, uh, that uh, you might even say, well, it really isn't that big a deal. Uh, and yet, what Leviticus 4 tells us is what? Ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. When I was 15 years old, I had my driver's license. In Virginia, you could get your farm use permit when you were 15. And uh, we had a truck and emblazoned on the side of it in the nicest spray paint money can buy, farm use. And a buddy and I decided we were going to drive the 100 miles or so to Washington, D.C. and just hang out in the city for the day. Well, we had crossed uh, the uh, bridge, the, the Constitution Avenue Bridge, whatever that thing's called now, uh, as we headed into the city. And it wasn't maybe five minutes when we were on the mall before one of the park police who was standing there just watched the truck and went like this and walked over and he said, where are you from? I told him where I was from. And he said, well, you, you know, you, you can't drive this. Furthermore, how old are you? I said, well, I'm 15, and I produced my driver's license. And I gave every, I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm from the country. I don't know. I, I thought this was all okay. Well, guess what he said? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And in the same way Leviticus 4 says, you might be going on your merry way, and you might even have an element of maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but it'll be all right. Leviticus 4 says, no, 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 you are guilty. Absolutely guilty. And yet, for these sins of, that are committed in ignorance <clears throat> or waywardness, atonement is made available. And we've spent more than enough time talking about what that atonement looks like, especially in chapters 9 and 10. But then we get to Numbers 1530. And I would add, if you, if you have a pen and paper, write it down. Numbers 1530, where the Bible actually makes a differentiation in sin. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. This is sinning with a high hand. Now, as I said before, all of our sin carries both of these elements. But the problem comes when sinning with a high hand becomes the basic nature of our sin. You understand what that means? If sinning with a high hand becomes the basic manifestation as to how sin shows itself in our lives, we're in a very bad place. It's not as if you sin in a deliberate way and you say, I feel burdened and I feel guilty about that. That's not sinning with a high hand. Sinning with a high hand is continuing to do something in deliberate defiance to God and not thinking a thing of it. And simply going on your merry way. 
And Numbers tells us that even for this sin, there is no atonement. Well, Paul also talks about this in 1 Timothy 1.13, where he talks about mercy and ignorance and unbelief. Jesus cried from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And even in these situations, we can see that ignorance can be deliberate. And yet there's forgiveness for this sin. Jesus executors, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is offered to them. Or even Paul. You see the difference? Because Paul was even going so far as to get a permit to go to Damascus to kidnap Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for execution. Talk about being deliberate. And yet, there's an element of ignorance there in which it was held out to Paul that he would have forgiveness. Willful sin seems to be a persistent attitude rather than an act in a continuing rejection of the known will of God. One of the great words that the author of Hebrews uses is perseverance in talking about the Christian life. Going on, persevering. It's going on in spite of opposition. But do you know that willful sin is a diabolical form of perseverance? It's contorted to make us it's perseverance contorted to make us persevere not with God, but against God. And we persevere in rebellion. Now here, as we've talked about before, we might have a propensity to seek out a particular sin. The one thing that you think you might be struggling with. But Hebrews here makes it clear that it's not about a particular sin. It's about a condition of the heart. An attitude of utter cold defiance to God, even when his word and will are clearly understood and known to us. That is what he's talking about. Not a particular act, but indeed a condition of the heart. And so the author of Hebrews is warning us. Now again, we may say it is impossible for a Christian to find themselves in such a state. But he's not talking about that which is unreal, but reality. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? These are people who have heard the word of the gospel and may have actually said, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but now find themselves where they're actually spurning, which literally means to trample underfoot Jesus himself or to profane the blood of the cross, to deny the sanctifying power of Jesus' blood, not only for justification, but also sanctification that Jesus has the saving power to cleanse, but also to change life. When we consistently rebel against God, and that is the pattern of our life, we trample underfoot the Son of God and profane His blood. And of course, to profane something means to make it common, to deny its power, 
to treat it as if it's nothing, something that can simply go into the refuse. Let me give you an example of how this works practically. Some years ago, I received a book in the mail, and in the book, it said, uh, turn to the first page of chapter 7, I've included you in my book. And so, of course, me being me, I immediately turned to page 7, I didn't look at the table of contents, I didn't look at the preface, I didn't look at the back cover. And it was published by a reputable publishing company, and so I thought, oh, well, what are people going to be reading if they read about me? And this is what this person wrote, someone who grew up in the life of the church and would even say that they're a Christian. This is what they wrote. Ironically, today is Good Friday. Though I feel there's more to say, and he's writing this as a prayer to God. Though I feel there's more to say, my prayer must come to an end. I have just returned from a church service where the crucifixion was glorified in a traditional solemn setting. Black cloths subdued the resplendence of the liturgical utensils, signifying the three hours of darkness surrounding your son's death. Musical instruments remained silent, only congregational voices of prayer and song graced the nave and sanctuary. Pensive reflections and emotional austerity enveloped the hearts and faces of the assembly. The sermon ensued. Now where is he talking about? Here. The historically settled and safeguarded interpretation of the cross was poignantly conveyed with the unfathomable heaviness of the moment when the severity of divine and human distress finally surrendered to your decree of bloodshed. At that instant, the minister declared the sin of all humanity, from the most innocuous to the most iniquitous, had been taken away by the Lamb of God, forever removed from your mind. Justice and mercy engaged the other, but both were victorious. Wrath and love came face to face, but both rejoiced. The message would have been incomplete if the messenger had not labored to induce within the assembly a sense of culpability, a feeling that each of us had played our part in sending Christ to the cross, that the road to Calvary had been partially paved by our own wrongs, and that the 2,000-year interval between my existence and his body nailed to the blood-soaked wood above the blood-soaked ground had been bridged by my sin. Deep sadness and remorse were the intended effect. But it was of no use. I had abandoned that spent vision of God, not because it had been exhausted, which anything true of you must be inexhaustible by definition, but because it's false. You get that? Now, he got my sermon spot on. That's exactly what I said. Why? Because I'm preaching directly from Hebrews. And yet they get to the end of it, and they say, but it's no use because such a vision of the cross is false. Now, I was surprised by my reaction to that because I thought I would be angry. But my initial reaction was actually to shudder. And I became intensely fearful for this man because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here is someone who is saying, I'm a Christian, and yet willfully and deliberately is teaching something that undermines exactly what the Bible says. The author of Hebrews is speaking directly to this person and is pleading with them, don't do this. 
Don't persevere in your rebellion against God. Don't deny the cross of its power. Don't go the wrong way in persistence rebellion against the one who came to save you. And yet many decide that they're going to trifle with the blood of Jesus. And we all do this in our own little ways. We might ask around the Advent, well, why do we keep going on and on and on about the blood of Jesus? Or why do we sing that hymn? It's a bit gory, isn't it? And my favorite is when people come up to me and say, why do we have to sing that Baptist hymn? And I'm like, you mean the Baptist hymn written by an Anglican clergyman named Charles Wesley? <laughs> that Baptist hymn that turns out to be Anglican? But of course, the author of Hebrews is saying that this is the most precious thing that we could ever sing about. It's the most glorious thing that we could ever talk about. And it's heavy for a reason. It's controversial for a reason. Because it's done what it set out to accomplish. And yet there are people who are willing to profane the blood of the cross and to trample Jesus himself underfoot. And indeed, the result of that, as our passage tells us, is to outrage the spirit of grace. This is the gravity of the sin that the author is holding up to us, warning us against our hearts becoming hard and getting to a place that it becomes irrecoverable and it's too late. And we see that in brothers and sisters, don't we? Now we don't know where they stand and of course if they are putting their trust in Jesus we know the Holy Spirit is going to put them back but do we also know that God may be using us to pull them back? I have some dear friends right now that I really struggle with and I can see their hard, hearts hardening before my eyes. But do we ever say anything? Do we ever pull them aside and say brother, sister, what's going on? What's happening with you? You know, you sang these hymns with us gladly two years ago, and now you scoff at them. You make fun of them. You belittle them. Which direction are you persevering in? But it's often neglected. Eric Alexander, who I absolutely love, obviously I've now quoted him twice, tells a great story about this. He was serving a congregation in New Milne, Scotland, and he decided that he was going to build some... Uh, some, uh, put some fence posts in the ground and cement them and he uh, had the wheelbarrow out and everything and he began to mix the cement with the sand and the water and all of that and he began to mix it and while he was finishing up mixing it uh, a phone call happened and he had to run inside and he had to run and do a pastoral appointment and he looked at the cement and his neighbor was looking over the fence who happened to be a building engineer and said you know uh, Reverend you You've got to get that in the ground if you're, if you're going to use it. It's, it's hardening, and Alexander gave it a quick mix. And he said, no, no, it's, it's, it's plenty good. And Alexander went off and paid the pastor a call, and when he got back, it was as hard as a rock, and he said, no hammer has been able to break it to this day. And if you go to the uh, manse in New Milne, Scotland, there in the front, off to the side, is a gigantic block of concrete. Well, Alexander's point is what Hebrews is trying to say. When the neighbor says, brother, that's hardening. And you say, no, it's not. And then you come back to it and what? It's too hard. It's too hard. 
I like the way that Miles Smith, does anyone know who Miles Smith is? Miles Smith was the Bishop of Gloucester, and he wrote the translator's preface to the King James Version of the Bible. Now, lots of us probably have King James Versions at home, but how many of us have the preface? It's great. It's great. In fact, the preface actually, anybody who says, you know, the King James Bible came down from heaven, it's the only one to use, the, the translator's preface to it, they actually said, that's not true. <laughs> they said, We've got it. it's got its problems. But hear what Miles Smith said in his uh, opening preference to the King James Bible. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but a blessed thing it is, and will bring us to everlasting blessedness in the end. When God speaketh unto us to hearken when he setteth his word before us to read it. When he stretched out his hand and calleth to answer, here am I. Here we are to do thy will, O God. The Lord work a care and conscience in us to know him and serve him. That we may be acknowledged of him at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. To whom with the Holy Ghost be all praise and thanksgiving. Amen. That's the last thing that the translators say before you head into Genesis 1.1. Do you hear it? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and yet God has set his word before us that our hearts would hearken to his voice. The point of the warning that Hebrews is giving us and what Miles Smith just articulated is not to lead us into discouragement and despair. Did you know that there are never warnings in the Bible that have that view? That when the Bible warns us, it's never to drive us to discouragement and despair. And so the author of Hebrews has in mind the sensitive and tender conscience of the one who dreads that they are guilty of what Hebrews is talking about. But if you're one of those right now that's sitting with an earshot of my voice and is worried, that might be me. Flee to Jesus. But the fact that you're worried that it might be you is proof that it's not you. Because when the heart gets hardened, it becomes deflective. The one I'm worried about is the one who says, couldn't possibly be me. But the one who has the tender and sensitive conscience is the one that shows that God's work is evident in their lives. And you've received the warning, haven't you? I'm taking God at his word and I'm receiving it. I don't want to be like that. I want to be like this. I want my life to be moving in the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to flee to him because this warning is meant to urge us on in the right way, not turning us to the dreadful alternative. Paul even asked for prayers in this in 1 Corinthians 9 when he kept the gravity of the alternative in mind, when he said, I've even preached the gospel, and yet, Lord, keep me from being a castaway. Keep me from being a castaway. So this is something that even the Apostle Paul is praying for, perseverance. And then, ah, we're at the end of time. But then we get to verse 32, where we have this wonderful word, but. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. After the light of Christ flooded into your life, that your eyes were opened and you were able to see the world as God does. This is an encouragement. 
The author is trying to point us back to a past experience, but also the future promise of God. Don't you remember how God intervened in your life and took care of you when you first became a believer? That even in the midst of the sufferings, there was God holding up your arms in the midst of the battle and walking with you and never leaving you nor forsaking you. But also this future promise of this great reward that we will receive, that he will bring us to an end, that he will complete that which he had begun, this good work within us. The Bible often reminds us of the need to reflect upon our past life. And this is what Paul did in 1 Corinthians that we just preached on, about being ransomed, saved, and changed when he says, so were some of you. Remember that that's what you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the Lord Jesus. This is how John Newton puts it. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God I am what I am. That's our testimony as Christians of this grace and a new beginning in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to finish it next week. Not next week or the week after, but the week following. So for the next three weeks, meditate on this and give thanks to God and flee to Jesus. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.